You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. Sponsorship for today's podcast is from the Hoof Care Essentials Foundation partner, Soft Ride Boots. In this episode of the podcasts, I interview Dr. Andrew Watts, who's a quiet-spoken and very laid-back Australian vet. And the reason I say that is that we are still going through a backlog of podcasts recorded during the last nine months. And of course, since that time, I have switched to a better sound quality. And I'm sure you can hear that from this introduction. So stick with them. Especially stick with this one because Andrew has a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, I know from our Survey Monkey that you want some more technical input. Well, there are there is bags of technical input in this. Um, we're looking at environmental effects on the hoof, but we're also looking at the chemistry of keratin, what it is that destroys keratin. And finally, towards the end of the podcast, we get on to Andrew's new product where he has produced a feed supplement to help improve hooves. And we can look at how he has reverse engineered the hoof to come up with this product and then bioengineered it and uh, he he claims that he can speed up the hoof growth with it to 10 to 14 millimeters and you'll you'll hear me discuss that with him uh, i don't know how widespread it is yet but even when i was there last august it was on the shelves in australia and new zealand so Andrew has a lot of interesting things to say and when you come to his deep philosophical question uh, it actually took him 45 seconds to come up with an answer. I don't know how much of that will be cut out in the editing of this podcast uh, but in the end it gives a really good answer. I'm at the Hunter Valley where I'm a speaker at the Equine Podiatry Lameness Centre conference. And of course, I've come here to this hot, dry country, and it's been a year of the longest drought for 70 years, and I've brought the rain with me. But while I'm here, I've met one of the other speakers, Dr. Andrew Watts, and uh, we're going to have a talk about his life and his experiences of the horse's foot. Welcome, Andrew. G'day. Uh, pleasure to be talking to you, Simon. All right. Uh, so the first thing I know, um, because we've had a couple of dinners together, is that you've actually spent quite a bit of time in the Middle East as a vet. Correct. Can you tell us how that occurred and, and, and some of your experiences? Yeah, I, I think I was uh, embedded in racetrack practice. I had my own practice and a couple of vets working for me. And um, I remember one particular trainer one morning was particularly annoying. And uh, I remember going home. <laughs> And on the way home, we had the uh, uh, advertisement section in the ABJ, and I literally saw an advertisement for the Royal Cavalry in Oman, and I said to my girlfriend at the time, I'm ready to go to a place like this. And she said, where is it? I said, I don't know. We had to look in the atlas. I filled out a resume and sent it over. And literally six months later, they uh, sent a ticket, and off off we went. I sold the practice, and um, off we went. And it was just a, a brave new world. So I'd achieved the goal of owning my own practice, had guys working for me, wanted to spread my wings, and headed out. And uh, 
I know something of Oman. Everybody thinks the Middle East, all the countries there are just desert, but of course Oman is just in the monsoon yeah. area, isn't it? The, yeah. the eastern third of it yeah. catches the monsoon, so it's green. And oh, yeah, from uh, end of June through to September, we have the Kharif, and the Kharif is um, it's literally cloud and rain, misty fine rain, and the uh, Salala region where we were, it looks like the Scottish Highlands, waterfalls, camels roaming through the through the forest on the range and it's a big 3,000 foot cliff that holds this enclave on the coast. It's uh, probably the coolest place in the, in the whole peninsula. It's well, it, it must have been a relief to get out of the desert and be able to go there, whereas yeah. some of the others don't, they don't have that. Yeah, it was. it was. It was fantastic. But we went there, uh, I worked with the Royal Cavalry there as um, the head vet down there for a couple of years. We drove up to Dubai a couple of times and uh, met the guys at Dubai Equine Hospital. And then, as it turned out, I had an, an ethmoid hematoma in one of the Sultan's prior stallions, and I we dragged it up. I don't know up. what that is, Andrew. Well, it's a I know what a hematoma is. <laughs> it's a okay. nasal tumour, okay. and uh, I'd scoped and seen this, and we didn't have any laser endoscopy facilities, so we, uh, we loaded up a whole lot of military trucks, drove all the way up to Dubai, and I did surgery on it in the facilities up there. And then they asked me to in Dubai to come and work for them. So one thing led to another, and they made an offer, and we um, I, we ended up heading up to Dubai and spent nine seasons in Dubai, and then went to uh, and had a ball. I worked for. I was very lucky. I um, became the veterinarian within oh, two months, three months of arriving in Dubai. I became the personal veterinarian for His Highness. Sheikh Rashid, who was the oldest son of Sheikh Mohammed, the Crown Prince, and um, I looked after his stables and all his horses globally. So I flew everywhere with him and his horses, and uh, he was a very intelligent and competitive young man. And we won the owners' premiership for him five consecutive years, and we beat his father, Sheikh Mohammed, for five consecutive years. Well, we all want to beat our dads, don't we? Yeah, and he did, and he beat his uncle, and uh, we caused quite a, we are quite an attention-seeking sort of machine. We had a ball, it was just tremendous fun. And uh, anyway, he died in, in, in uh, 2015, it was a tragedy. Um, I went to Bahrain, Three, for three years, Sheikh Mohammed in Bahrain asked me to go over there and do some work for him and I worked with a fantastic trainer there, um, Alan Smith, British trainer. And um, again, we had fantastic time. We, we, we won the King's Cup for three consecutive seasons and then unfortunately there was in the Arab Spring in the end of... Um, you were in the middle of the revolution, weren't you? Yes. Really in the middle of it. Yeah, it got, it got particularly messy, <laughs> I remember sitting on the roof. I'd actually gone to work one particular afternoon and my wife had said, you're not going to work, you're not going to work. And I, I headed off because there were penicillin shots to do and, and that's what had to be done. And of course, as soon as I left the house, there ended up being a tank battle outside our house. My wife rang up and said, um, for the first time in my life, she was really, she'd lost the plot. She said, you know, the hell I told you not to go and uh, I said right I'll come home and she said you idiot what the hell are you going to do in the middle of a tank battle so she said I'll ring you when the firing stops and so I, I drove home over all the gun shells the empty casings all over the road 
and then we watched helicopter gunships from our roof strafe um, insurgents. My wife said, that's it, I'm going home. So we came back to Australia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So that was our return to Australia. And so were you originally from Queensland? I was actually um, born and bred in Corindai in the Hunter Valley here. Oh, okay. So this is home country for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, you, but you moved back to Queensland, didn't you? Yes, I moved back to, I was uh, educated. I did my um, university degree in Queensland. I did all of my um, uh, internship at Eagle Farm Vet Services in Brisbane at the hospital there. Very privileged to work under a vet by the name of Dr. Lester Walters, who's still my mentor and I still see him every week and I work now with him in his clinic doing podiatry work. I, I was going to get on to what is your specific area of interest, oh. as if people wouldn't have guessed the fact you've been invited <laughs> onto this podcast. <laughs> yes, but. yes, with the hoof. <laughs> I, I, I um, soon realised in the Middle East with the massive amount of feet problems that we had there, um, we had a lot of brittle shaly feet. At the time, we actually thought it was, uh, and I've always been interested in feet, Keith Swan, actually. Um, yeah, I remember Keith. Was, um, I was lucky enough during Queensland Uni, every morning tea and lunchtime, he had a farrier forge set up outside our cafeteria at the vet school. So for the entire length of my veterinary training, I just hung out at a forge and watched this magnificent bloke incredible shoes and do things with feet and make a difference to horses and, and then the more and more practice and then I ended up working with Craig Jones, uh, one of Keith's mentors who's now head uh, of university farrier department, head farrier and he's a very talented man and head of Queensland Farriers Association. Spent a lot of time with Craig, Craig and I were young at the time when we first started working together and you know, we made mistakes like everybody does but we had fun with it. And, um, yeah, I suppose it just grew from there. And, um, we, we just had passion with it. Uh, you know, it's, it's lovely when you mention Keith Swan because I have a feeling that in my very first book, you know, I was determined that all the pictures were mine, but Keith supplied me with a couple that I didn't have. So all the way really? from Australia, he sent really? them long before digital photography. And yeah, yeah, cool. So it, it was, you know, film that arrived in the post. So yeah. I, of course, I only met him a few times, yep. but um, yeah, got on really well with him, yep. great knowledge, and um, so, yeah. so it's amazing that, you know, what a small world that he's had it such is. an influence on you. It is, and he ignited a fire in me, and I still maintain to this day that as good a veterinary surgeon you are with lamenesses, um, when one walks into your clinic, if it's uh, anything, you know, any soft tissue injury or anything literally above the coronary band, chances are they're going to walk out the same lameness back out of your clinic. If it's a foot, it's the only area that I've ever been able to turn a, a lame horse into a sound horse by the time it leaves one the clinic. Treatment, yeah. yeah, one treatment. And uh, it's obviously all about reward and I've been lucky enough to work with some, some brilliant farriers. It's just been luck. But uh, a lot of them have been some of my best friends and uh, I, I love the dynamic of the vet-farrier relationship. I've really always enjoyed that, so that's been a part of the whole attraction as well. Okay, well we'll come back to that, Andrew. Um, but firstly, yep. because you've travelled so much, was there any typical problems of the foot that you you noted in in the Middle East and in the yes. you know dry, hot deserts? Yeah, we we uh, we had a lot of uh, we had horses obviously in the Middle East um, that were 
extremely valuable. We had them from the US, Europe, and UK, and Australia, and France. And um, we had very thin-soled, brittle, shaly-walled feet on the large percentage of our horses. And uh, at the time, and probably only until about two years ago, I surmised that it was obviously environmental, but we all blamed the track, the swimming, the horses were always standing in water or swimming. Uh, you know, it, it was very easy to blame that part of the environment. I think given the research and the amount of people that I've been talking to in the last three or four years, specifically about hoof management and talking at the interface uh, at the stables, I firmly believe now that we were dealing with potential ammonia issues in the box. I think now scientifically, talking to the guys in Hong Kong, my colleagues in, in Hong Kong, I think ammonia has a lot to answer for and the specific chemical structure of ammonia and how it interacts with the keratin molecule yeah. is, um, is really interesting and ammonia will split the keratin uh, disulfide bridge quite quickly and easily and uh, I think that that's part and it affects the hydroscopic capacity of the hoof capsule yeah. and then I think degeneration quickly follows it's irrelevant of track surface and traveling to Sydney you know you, you, you t you'll talk to 10 different trainers on the same track half of them say the tracks to blame they have terrible feet four of them will say look you know it's average and one will say we have no problems at all and you walk into the boxes Wait a minute, the none barns. of them blame the farrier what a wonderful country Australia I have to say none of them blame the farrier well, and, uh, and and yet the one barn that you walk into that don't have the feet problems and there's no smell, it's a clean barn, the boxes are deep, the shavings are deep and, and I think more and more, and uh, the guys who are having the trouble, uh, the barn's smell is an, an aroma, yeah. it's, it's heavy, uh, I, think it, I think there's more investigating needs to be done along these lines. Uh, I think we can potentially help horses in stable environments looking at this more closely. So that, that's, well, obviously a comparison with, with, with Sydney and, and the, the Middle East, but you, yeah. you, you went from one hot area of the world to another. Yeah. But yes. the difference is yeah. there is a higher humidity, isn't there, in Queensland, so it does have a different climate. Yeah, Queensland well, has... Where most of the horses are by the coast. Yeah, high. so now where I'm practising in Queensland, we, we deal with a, interestingly enough, um, <laughs> retrospectively, it's actually far wetter and the horses' feet are a lot wetter where we are now in Queensland than they ever were in Dubai, and I don't see the same problems. I see a whole different range of problems. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's not until you start to really closely look at environment, start to relate environment, you start to realise uh, what an impact you can make with feet by changing the environment. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm seeing here in Queensland now is range of issues we're seeing a lot of racehorses with this low uh, low heel negative palmar axis that's becoming an incremental issue that we haven't really seen in the numbers that i've seen before but we identified proximal limb lameness uh, as an adjunct and a part of this syndrome in the middle east and i suppose my initial awareness of it there transpired to what we now observe here on a day-to-day -day basis but it's a really big issue, not only in racing, but in performance horses, even quarter horses. And uh, well, and I think that's true all over the world. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, we have this high instance of suspensory ligament dermatitis, yeah. and yes, which you know, 
30 years ago people didn't talk about that at all yep exactly exactly so and it's because there was a very low level then yeah yeah but there's a high level well i look at the what we found with hock injuries and uh, that paper done by lynn Pizant in uh, at csu presented last year at the uh, you know at the aep I think that's a great reflection and she said it's the first paper produced in the world to actually document these hind limb lamenses associated with negative PA. I think we all need to take that on board. It's a very interesting paper, it's worth, it's worth absorbing. Yeah. Uh, okay, now I know that we had a chat last night over dinner of something that's perhaps not the sort of thing you should speak about at dinner right. and that's... Uh, <laughs> uh oh, uh, no, that's keratoma. So oh, I know keratoma. You, yeah, that's made me relax. Yeah. <laughs> So, so tell yes. me uh, what your feelings are about keratoma and its treatment, because I know you had quite strong beliefs last night. Uh, okay, so, so ker keratoma... Oh, sorry. There's me... Um, so keratoma... No, uh, I didn't mean keratoma, because you got ker you, you've showed a really good example of keratoma. Uh, what I really wanted to ask is, is your um, yes. opinion of canker. Oh, canker. Yeah, oh, that's what look, you I'm really playing. glad you've asked me about yeah. that. I, I finally um, got around to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and nearly the same starting letter. <laughs> but look, I, uh, and I have to say unlucky or, or lucky, um, I was fortunate enough to be exposed to a couple of cases in Australia before I went to the Middle East and I implemented the current globally recommended um, surgical debridement of the lesion. And uh, I have to say, unfortunately, they ended up being persistent despite aggressive treatment and the recommended topical protocol. And uh, then I struck more in the Middle East, and it tends not to be in thoroughbreds, it's obviously in these heavier horses. And um, the cases I struck there were either heavy horse or heavy horse warm blood crosses uh, in the performance horse industry. And um, it, and I'm not sure why or how it happened. I suppose it was my increasing understanding of the anatomy of the foot, but I identified this particular horse, and it was like getting slapped in the face when I cleaned up this particular cauliflower lesion this, this particular day and looked at it. It quite honestly looked like a, a sea anatomy that I'd taken out of the water, and it had a very tentacular look to it, like tentacles yeah. that, that, that looked... Uh, deflated and on lying on a wet surface and, and I, I suddenly dawned on me that this is not a cauliflower tumour, these are frog and sole papillae and that debriding this incredibly delicate tissue is, is, is simply not sensible. So I adopted a treatment regimen uh, using 10% benzoyl peroxide and then using sulfur, sulfur powder, sulfur antibiotic powder, yeah. and incrementally crushing up uh, iodine crystals, mixing it with the sulfur and topically applying it. You were able to settle down the inflammation of these papillae, reduce them, and uh, subsequently uh, able to produce beautiful sol and uh, renewable, a renewable frog, and these horses never relapsed. All my previous ones had relapsed. So, we were lucky enough, or unlucky enough, because the smell does stick with you forever. <laughs> uh, I can walk into a barn and I can smell one in a barn now. They're uh, they're quite quite characteristic, and uh, 
the smell goes through two sets of surgical gloves and permeates your skin and you have to spend 10 minutes in the shower <laughs> on the yeah. hot water to try and try and get the smell out. But well, well I, I've experienced canker over the years because yeah. when I was attached to a hospital, but the reason I like your rationale is, is mm. that, as you said, if this is papillae, albeit uh, exuberantly growing and inflamed, mm. they are still the germative layer and if you destroy that, how do you expect things to come back? Correct, correct. And I, I also know in India, they where they get lots of canker, they have yes. success with astringent, so it's the same sort of thing, yes. Dry, not removing it surgically. Correct, drying it out. Yeah, and driving drying it, it back into the foot. As soon as the exudation starts to come under control, in my experience, you've managed to control the anaerobic bacteria that I feel are involved. I feel it's the anaerobic bacteria at the clefts of the base of the papillae that are causing that uh, inherent inflammation and that's why it's so difficult to treat because to reach those anaerobes at the bottom of the papillae is difficult. That's why I recommend using topical 10% benzoyl peroxide. It's literally releasing oxygen and killing those bacteria by drying it with sulfur and then with the iodine mixtures you're literally permeating, you're just literally oxygenating that region. As soon as you've oxygenated, it all starts to settle down and the exudation starts to reduce. Okay, great advice. Well, tell me though, but do you bandage it or do you hospitalize it? Bandage it. Twice daily. Okay. Right. It's a procedure that has to be initiated twice daily. Okay. Uh, and then you'll know when you get to the once daily. Yeah, I'm it, sure. It's, it's simply, it just becomes very, but it's a six to eight week okay. treatment period. You, I ended up getting to the stage where we were so good at it, I would literally say, explain to the owners, right, we have to have our dry box available for two to three months, book the horse in, initiate treatment, follow through to the end of it, and uh, engage the owner on a day-to-day -day basis and photograph it and keep it, and, yeah, keep everyone on the same page, as, as you would normally with yeah. any acute case. But the potential euthanasias, they're very dangerous. Oh, patients. I recently had a... A yeah. horse that I had for, for dissection because it had been euthanized for canker. Okay, moving on now, since you've been back, mm. you've um, been developing a new product called Hoof Gold. Mm. So I'd like you to tell me how that came about yep. and, and, and what you think this product will do for <clears throat> us. Mm. Well, uh, as explained, it was developed out of sheer frustration. Um, working for the Crown Prince, I had an unlimited budget and he regularly told me never ever come to me and tell me that money was a problem. Which has its pluses and minuses, it means you never have an excuse. It's lovely yeah. to be able to say sometimes, well if I had that I would have been able to fix it. We didn't have that out at any stage, but we tried every formulation available in the world at double, triple, quadruple dose, and we are unable to get past our brittle feet. Yeah. And, uh, we just couldn't substantiate, we tried to do growth trials, we couldn't stimulate that hoof capsule in any way. And then when I returned to Australia, it was actually one of my own horses that was an RSPCA rescue, and he was a sinker and a rotator. And uh, I'd had several different farriers try and put plates on him and, and the poor guy couldn't walk. And I finally made a vow to myself. And the horse's name, believe it or not, we found out once he got through the herstorism and the RSPCA stages, you were able to identify his brand, lock him down, and his racing name was Fly Dubai. <laughs> so it was one of those ironies. I made a commitment to myself to to find something that would 
stimulate his hoof growth and uh, he was my template. We reverse engineered the formula. We reverse engineered hoof wall. We took biopsies of hoof wall and uh, I figured that if we were going to make a formula, it had to have every substrate that is part of the biochemical matrix of hoof wall. So we, we made sure all of those substrates were involved and then we talked to the US College of Dermatologists and they'd printed some papers subsequent to 2013. We did a lot of research, talked to a lot of these guys. They'd done some research on glycophospholipids and different additives that were being tested in uh, germinal epithelial hair studies. And, uh, and that's where the research money is. And uh, not in hoof wall, surprisingly. No, no. <laughs> but uh, they were the frontline technology they still lead the world with a lot of their laboratory work and uh, very easy guys to talk to and I was very fortunate but we then you know looked at their data looked at the substrates and put together this mixture and um, then we had to go through the stability and uh, the, the bioengineering of, of my dream product which took another six to twelve months and, and plenty of money yeah. and then we came up with the formula and started our initial trials and uh, I'll never forget the day I was actually back in the Middle East and my wife rang me and she said, this horse of yours from I Dubai, he's, he's grown half a new foot and I'd been away for three months and you could have pushed me over with a feather and she sent photographs so I simply couldn't believe it and that was the first trial batch. Yeah. and. Um, so anyway, so then we started our trials and, and we've done trials on, on over 300 horses, uh, photographed and uh, measured and, and now we've got radiographs and we've, we're literally getting 10 to 14 millimetres in horses that were previously in the well, two and a half to maximum seven millimetre range. So we've had significant growth increases. And, and as you know, that's, that's the, an interest of mine with foals. You're yes. getting hoof growth on mature horses yep. at the same rate as this fantastical growth that foals, you know, yes. only have for a few months. But yes. And so, yes, to get 10 to 14 yes. uh, mil per month is, is really... And, and you'll appreciate the situation that uh, particularly, well, from my perspective, where I, 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 you know, where you're doing hoof surgery, removing large sections <laughs> of hoof wall to get these performance horses back into a workable scenario. You have to maximise the growth, and I showed you the slide of that keratoma. Yeah. And that keratoma, reverting back to the keratoma, we, we, we had 18.7 millimetres per 30 days with that keratoma and had the horse back in work. And we had nearly a full wall regrown from a total resection in um, just under a week under five months. Yeah. As I say, the yeah. only time you ever see that speed yeah, is, yeah. So, normally yeah, is so a newborn foal. Yeah, so, so it's quite handy. extraordinary. Yeah, double, double yeah, the way. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, that's great. When does it go worldwide? Because I know you're on the market here. Yes, uh, we're on the market here in New Zealand and, and Japan. And ironically, we're just waiting for um, the legal framework to be completed before we can head to uh, head elsewhere and. Uh, Lawyers are a great bunch of people. All you've got to do is throw time and money at them, and they're happy. <laughs> Just like that, from my experience. Okay. Take okay. Well, we look forward to that because it sounds really exciting. Yeah. Um, Andrew and um, and as Thanks. I say, I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing it in the UK. Yes. All right. Now you spent enough time in an Arabic country to have picked up a little bit of the lingo. Yes. So 
I just want something simple like, um, you know, you get a phone call, they want you there now, but mm. what about if you could say, uh, no problem, I'll see you tomorrow? Ah, miskila, inshallah, inshallah, bukra, inshallah. Well, I'm glad you threw in three inshallahs there. Even I know that it's God willing. So, so the interesting part of inshallah <coughs> is that every negotiation ends in inshallah, which is God willing. Yeah. And normally if you say, I'll meet you tomorrow, and it's inshallah to an individual, suddenly there's a third party involved. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a great, um, I suppose it's a cop-out in the Middle East if yes. you don't get there. It's the third party God, is responsible. God was clearly yes. not willing to meet you. All right. Now, the other bit of fun we have is, uh, well, I wouldn't say it's fun because yes. it's serious, yes. is um, a, what I call the deep philosophical oh, question. Perfect. And so I would like you to tell me mm -hmm. what you think is the most important thing you've learned in your life. Learned? Oh, good grief. I'm stumbling for an answer on that. Is it professional or is it, is it personal? I don't mind. Yeah. You can answer um, both, but if you're struggling altogether. Yeah. No, no, look, it's, it's okay. The most important thing I've learned. Uh, pursue your own goals and dreams. Don't be swayed by the thoughts and comments of others. Yeah, because people will always hold you back, won't they? Yes, That's they will. That's been my experience. Yeah, yeah. They give you ten reasons not to do something. Yes. Whereas yeah, yeah. one good reason to yeah, do it. Yeah. Okay, just finally to finish, I, I just wanted to ask you what you think are the obstacles uh, in the way of good bet barrier relationships? You know, uh, I see uh, in Australia at the moment, and I suspect it's globally, um, a deal of suspicion from, from, from a farrier's perspective towards vets. They're always guarded because historically, unfortunately, my colleagues are renowned for... Uh, dropping farriers in it yeah, and uh, so. I think they've had enough of that. I yeah, think easy excuse the horses lame <laughs> yeah. Sure, yeah. Blame the farrier, I think as, as professionals we all need to, uh, as professional veterinary surgeons, we, we really need to uh, never ever do that. We need to uh, make sure we, we respect the farrier and giving respect is the best way to receive it. And once you start that cycle uh, and you've got each other's back, the world as you live. Okay, because all, all of us that are a long time in this business, you know, know that, that, that it can be such an effective yep. relationship yep. when there's a good relationship yep. between Vets and Paris. Yeah. Well, Andrew, we've come to the end, but I know in three weeks' time I'm yes. going to see you again. Yes, yeah. <laughs> After yeah. not meeting you. Which I've only found this morning. <laughs> yeah, because you're coming up to the Australian Farriers Conference and I'm flying back to Australia. Yeah, yeah, going attend, back yeah. to the UK in the, in the yeah. interim. That's then, pretty cool. Then up to uh, to Queensland this time, so we're yeah. going to see what... Yeah, yeah. Uh, so closer to home for you. You'll, you'll have to, we'll have to see what your time schedule is. You might have to come around and uh, we might have to have a... An Aussie, an Aussie red at my place one night. Well, we'll as we you go. know, it's my favourite <laughs> red. So, so I look forward to that. Anyway, Dr. Andrew Watts, thank you very much for your Simon, time. Simon, thanks so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Well, wasn't that a great conversation with Andrew Watts? I hope uh, you could hear because he was quiet spoken. And as I said at the start, at this point, we hadn't improved the technology of these podcasts to get better sound. He 
gave a great technical description on the treatment of canker, uh, an argument against debridement and an argument for using astringents and driving it back. So that was great knowledge for all of us about canker. He, of course, was promoting his product, Hoof Gold. Who can blame him for that? All of us have a mortgage to pay, and he spent a lot of time and energy in producing it. But he does at least describe some of the uh, complexities of producing a new product such as this. You can tell that I, although I didn't um, grill him too hard on the speed he claims that this product will produce, but I did compare it with the foals that, of course, I've studied and measured, which have an extraordinary fast rate of growth. And for those of you that need some figures, yes, foals will produce hoof growth at 10 to 14 millimetres that um, Andrew claimed he can get in mature horses. But of course, mature horses are usually found to have a growth of somewhere around five or six millimetres per month. But it's for you to decide the veracity of this. And as you could tell from the podcast, Andrew is a fantastic supporter of farriers. And he's a really nice guy, full of lots of information. And I hope that's come over in this podcast. We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.